First Peter 5, 8 through 14, please stand for the reading of God's word. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, we are today coming to the close of this journey through 1 Peter that we began back in the fall. We've been looking at what it means to live as elect exiles. That's the theme of this letter. We are the elect. We're the chosen. We've been forgiven. We've been adopted into God's family. We have the presence of the Lord Emmanuel with us. All of this good in our lives, and yet we have to figure out how to live that out in the midst of a broken world as exiles. And uh, all the challenges that come with that. And that's what this letter's been about. And um, we wrap this up today. And what Peter does today in, um, in verse 8 is uh, introduce us to the ultimate enemy, the devil himself. We've seen other challenges so far, trials in life. We've seen the government authorities. We've seen slave owners. We've seen uh, the pagans who are uh, persecuting them. And now at the very end, we kind of, the, the curtain pulls back to the ultimate um, one, the devil. And so what we're going to do today is look at a portrait of the devil and how we resist him. Not a classic Christmas message by any means. Uh, but Jesus does say the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came to earth. So uh, in that sense, it's very related to Christmas. And so um, that's what we're going to look at. We're going um, to look at this guy and uh, how do we resist him. That's what I'm going to talk about today. And I just thought it's worth acknowledging, you know, this idea of a devil, um, let's just acknowledge that to many kind of modern scientifically minded people, this whole idea sounds pretty ridiculous, right? Seems like a, just sort of, sort of a hangover from, from an earlier age of superstition and things like that. And uh, certainly I think even as Christians, we would want to get rid of the cartoonish figure that we might have in our heads of a guy with a red suit and a pitchfork and horns and a long tail, all of that. But to say what Scripture clearly teaches, and all of Scripture teaches this from, Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, is that uh, there is a, a very personal, real, evil intelligence, uh, a being that is very sinister uh, and very dark and very sophisticated. And even to, to a modern, scientifically-minded person, I would want to say to them, you look at the world, and there is evil in the world that just can't be explained by lack of education or a lack of research, uh, 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 
resources or, or science or any of these things. There, there are things at work in this world that you can't describe simply by misguided human decisions. And, and Scripture has a very clear answer to that. That's right. There's a, there's a spiritual presence, a personality, Satan. There's more than, you know, and demons as well that are alive and well in this world. And I actually think the evidence pr- suggests that. And certainly the Scriptures, including Jesus, constantly remind us of that. So what I want to do today, I know you weren't ready for this conversation about Satan, um, but I want, to, um, I want to talk about him and how we resist. And according to 1 Peter, there's so much we could talk about, obviously, but I want to stick with 1 Peter as much as possible and um, talk about what are we talking about and what did Jesus come to destroy? So look at verse 8. Uh, we get three descriptions of him uh, in this in this passage. First, he describes him as your enemy, okay? Here's who we're talking about, your enemy, or another word your translations might say your adversary. And the Greek there has the word anti in it. It basically means the one who is continuously opposed to you. <laughs> this is your enemy. And we've seen in First Peter other things we might think are our enemies, like Circumstantial trials in life, okay? That can feel like our enemy. Like the government, that can feel like our enemy. Um, in the first century, again, slave masters, for first century slaves, that would have felt like the enemy. Uh, persecution that was, that was happening through the, through the pagan world, that would feel like an enemy. But Peter says, no, th- th- those aren't your ultimate enemy, actually. That's not who the battle is ultimately against. It is against this personal being we describe as Satan. He is your true enemy enemy. And that's important for us to remember as we go through life. Who's the real enemy, right? My marriage is hard right now, let's say. My kids are, you know, who's the real enemy here? <laughs> We're in a weird time in this nation, but who's the real enemy? This is the real enemy. We need to remember that, okay? He is the enemy. Second description, your enemy, he calls him the devil, okay? And that's not actually a personal name, the devil. Uh, that comes from a Greek word, and the word comes from a verb which means to slander, okay? To cast through with words, to slander. And so the, the, the name devil kind of alerts us to, to Satan's primary strategy, and it is to slander through ideas, okay? So think about this. Um, sometimes Satan slanders us before God, okay? So Job 1, remember the book of Job? Most scholars think this is the oldest uh, literature in the Bible. First thing that was written historically is Job. And there you have God and, and the angels, and all of a sudden this, the Satan, you know, who's an angelic being, shows up. And God says, look at my servant Job. He's an amazing, righteous man who loves me. And what does Satan do? He slanders Job before God. He's only like this because you give him all this nice stuff. I'd be like that if I was his wealthy. Take that stuff away, and he will curse you to, to your face. He slanders Job before God, and that's what Satan wants to do. Uh, more often, though, it's the opposite, right? The other thing he does is he slanders God in our hearts and minds, doesn't he? And this is the original creation account, Genesis 3, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, we're presented with a God who's incredibly generous, creative, loving, beautiful, intimate, longs for relationship with his creatures, and there Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the serpent, right, comes, and what does he do? He slanders God. He places an idea in the minds of Adam and Eve, and the idea is essentially this. He's not that generous, right? Like, I mean, why is he keeping this 
this good thing for me? Why would, why would he withhold that from me? Maybe he's not that generous. Maybe, uh, maybe he actually wants to keep you in your place. The core idea being maybe you can't trust him, right? Maybe he doesn't have your best in mind. He slanders God in our hearts and minds, and this is his central work. That's what he wants to do. First and foremost, he wants to get in between the relationship between God and his children, create a wedge, and create distrust and fear and resentment and anger. That's what he does. He's the slanderer. And the primary way he does that, this is important, is in the realm of ideas, in messages that he sends to our minds. Jesus, in, in John 8, it's probably the, the most helpful, I think, commentary on Satan. He calls Satan the father of lies. When he lies, Jesus says, he speaks his native tongue. Lying comes so easy to him. And Satan works in a ton of different ways, but primarily he works in the realm of ideas. And I want to come back to that in just a second, but that's what he does. He slanders. He creates, a, he creates division between us and our God through implanting messages that are false, that are deceitful. You with me? Okay. All right. He's the enemy. He's the devil. Third description, third and final description. Uh, this is quite a, a ominous description. Look at it again, verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Okay? Terrifying image. Prowling around like a lion looking for people to devour. And the idea of devour, this is, I think, gets at Satan's ultimate goal is to devour. It is to destroy, to utterly bring to ruin. This is his goal always. And it's really important to remember that because the means he uses to that goal are often very enticing, right? They're, they're not, they don't come in a roaring kind of sound. They come as a whisper. They come as a temptation. They look good on the surface, right? And so Peter's saying, yeah, but make no mistake about it. His end game is your ruin. There is no life down the, the path of whatever that false message you're kind of buying into right now. It, is, it will end in your destruction. That's certainly what he wants to do with it. And so that's important. You know, I, I'm, um, <laughs> right now I'm reading through Dante's Inferno, which is nice light reading. Um, and uh, it's the divine comedy, but the, the first third is, is Dante goes on this imaginary journey down through kind of the, the circles of hell all the way down to the bottom. It's his sort of, it's, it's, there's not a ton of scriptural, it's kind of his imaginative journey, but it's really compelling. And at the very end, you've seen all this fire, all this heat, but the very bottom of hell is ice cold. And Satan is there, and he's waist deep in this lake of ice, and he's a three-headed beast. He's sort of a false trinity. And in each uh, with each head, he's devouring one of the three greatest sinners of all time. And, and for Dante, those were traitors. So it's, it's Judas Iscariot, and then it's Brutus and Cassius. Or, yeah, Brutus and Cassius who, you know, betrayed Julius Caesar. But what he's doing is he's eternally devouring these three individuals with his three heads. And I'm thinking, that's actually a great picture here. But I go, gosh, Judas, Satan, like, that's your man, like, he was your servant. He did what you wanted him to do. And what's the reward for that? Eternally being devoured. And this image reminds us, Satan doesn't want our pleasure. He doesn't want our... He can use pleasure as a means, but 
he would much rather have no pleasure. His, his goal is our ruin. That's what he wants. So whatever means he uses, the end game is always destruction and chaos. All right, so you have these three images. And, and before I move to how we resist, I just want to ask the question, this, this image of a lion, like how strong is this guy? It was a pretty strong image. And without going into a ton of detail, I think if you look at the New Testament, it paints a very consistent picture of Satan, which is he is very strong. He's stronger than you are. He's smarter than you are. He's crafty. He's, he's you know, one of the strongest things out there. But he is a defeated foe, right? And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus came to earth to destroy the devil's work. He does that certainly just by becoming one of us, but through his life and ministry, we see him defeating Satan, casting out demons, binding the strong man and plundering his possessions, right? Freeing human beings, giving them back um, their kind of dignity. Uh, Ultimately, of course, he destroys Satan at the cross and the resurrection. The cross destroys his greatest weapon of accusation and slander because the cross brings forgiveness. Um, the resurrection <laughs> defeats his great weapon of intimidation, because what can you do, Satan? Kill me, right? Well, that's not so bad in the end, right? So he's, he's strong and powerful, but he is a defeated foe. He's uh, defanged, <laughs> whatever word you want, declawed uh, lion, uh, but he's angry. He's still bitter, and he's still on a rant, but we can resist him, which we'll see in a second. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Live No Lies, which is on the world, the flesh, and the devil. And um, the author is John Mark Comer. He's given me kind of a metaphor that's been really helpful to think about Satan's role currently as a defeated foe who's still around. And what he argues is, is we should think of spiritual warfare not so much in terms of images like World War II, where you kind of have these two equal and opposite forces going at, two armies going at, at each other. It's... Now, Satan, it's more like trying to fight um, against jihadists in the Middle East, okay? Where you have like a superpower like America, which is clearly more powerful. And yet you have these, these terrorist groups that will just kind of, you know, pop up sort of guerrilla warfare here and there or, or, you know, a terrorist attack here or there or even more like a cyber attack on a nation, okay? So um, spreading disinformation through these various means, this is how we should think about Satan today. So let me, let me read to you from this book. He says, uh, during the Cold War, and remember, Satan's primary um, strategy is in the realm of ideas, messages, okay? So stick with this metaphor. During the Cold War, the Russians coined the term desinformatia, it's a good Russian accent there, uh, <laughs> to capture their new form of subterfuge, which entered our vocabulary as disinformation. We've heard a lot about disinformation recently. The KGB began to flood the world with lies, half-truths, and propaganda, placing high-level spies in key roles in Western media, journalism, and entertainment, partially to advance their agenda, but partially just to throw off the equilibrium of the West. And I think Satan, what a great metaphor, Satan as the ultimate propagator of disinformation. He's been doing it since the beginning, okay? So here, I'm going to actually give you this quote. So, when you think about spiritual warfare, ditch your mental image of saving Private Ryan or Lord of the Rings. Instead, imagine a Russian hacker holed up in a room somewhere, programming bots and algorithms based on data harvested from Facebook and Google. 
These algorithms can work out when you are most emotionally vulnerable and susceptible to manipulation, then inject an emotion-loaded uh, news story, alert, or link into your feed at just the right time to prey on your fear or your desire and index you toward their desired behavior, opinion, or view. Right? Wow. That's a pretty great metaphor. I mean, that actually happens, but that's a pretty great metaphor for Satan. He's defeated. He can't win in open combat. So he has this disinformation campaign, this, this sort of terrorist attacks here or there. And of course, he knows when we're susceptible. And so he brings his messages at these points where they'll have the most power. He's the father of lies. He's the slanderer. And I want to just keep going down this road for a second and get kind of specific. I was thinking sometimes there, there's disinformation, uh, there's lies that Satan speaks into a culture that, that actually kind of get cultural force, like they become the dominant thought in a culture. Let me give you a couple that will be kind of obvious, low-hanging fruit. He can inject ideas about race in our nation and its history and nations all around the history, maybe most infamously in Nazi Germany, right? He, it's a disinformation campaign about race, about that a, a person's ethnicity, a particular ethnicity somehow makes them less than human. Okay, that is a satanic idea. That's an idea that has as its origin Satan himself, and it can gain traction in an entire society. So these people are expendable, right? These people are property, whatever, however that plays out. Another one that's still alive and well, ideas about the unborn, right? Human beings in the womb aren't actually human beings, so they are expendable. They are someone's property. Okay? That's gained traction in a, many nations. It's become put into policy, right? Satanic in origin, I would argue. Um, how about this? <laughs> Uh, this is front and center. Ideas about love and sex. Love is that feeling you feel, right? That's what love is. And sex, sex is just a form of self-expression, okay? Gained traction in Western society as a whole, wreaking havoc on Western society. How about this one? Ideas about your stuff. This is disinformation. The more stuff you have, the more fulfilled you will be. That is satanic in origin, the idea is, and it has gained traction in our nation and many nations. Uh, do I have any others? Let's see. Oh, uh, ideas about following your heart, right? Follow your heart. This is the message that has gained traction in the youth. That is the worst advice I've ever heard, right? <laughs> that will wreak havoc on a nation, and it has gained deep traction in the imagination of our culture, okay? These are, this is disinformation sometimes that gains cultural traction. But beyond that, of course, we have our own personal, the, the messages um, that are spoken to us, right? This, these false uh, scripts that get planted in our hearts and minds and actually really hit us hard. Let me just give you a couple. Sometimes these are very dark messages, um, I think some of us struggle with this false script. God has always disappointed in me. He's up there and he's just, he's just kind of shaking his head when he looks at me, right? That's an idea that, is, that has been planted in our hearts. Similar one, uh, I'm unworthy of love. Something happened to me, something was done to me, or I did a bunch of things, 
I think other people are worthy of love. I don't think I'm worthy of love, okay? That is a, that is a deep, dark message. Um, some of these messages maybe are enticing messages. Um, I'll be happier in a different marriage, right? That's one alive and well, and, and one that many of us may feel from time to time. I, this, is, this is hard. I think I'd be happier in a different, in a different marriage. Um, I need people to like me, <laughs> to be content, right? That, that'll, that'll drive uh, a certain kind of behavior. Um, I need to be in control to feel safe. When I'm not in control, I don't feel safe, so I need to be in control. That, that will drive a certain behavior. Um, <laughs> I deserve to watch this right now. I deserve to watch. I know I shouldn't watch this, but I deserve to watch. I've worked hard all day. I've worked hard all week. I should watch this thing. That would be really bad for me to watch, okay? These are messages, right? I'm not saying Satan himself is coming to you and planting these messages, okay? He probably has bigger fish to fry, um, but I'm saying these, these are part of a, a nexus of evil that he is at the head of, okay? And I would guess, just to bring this to, to Christmas, I would guess for many of us, um, the Christmas season has its own messages, um, that, as Christina was mentioning, depending on our, our background or just kind of what drives us, that, that this season carries its own disinformation. Um, I need everyone to be happy over Christmas for me to be happy, right? That's, that's one that some of you, if, I, I need everyone to be happy uh, for me to be happy. Uh, or for some, it's much harder. No, no one sees me. No one notices me. That's, what, that's the message of Christmas for me. Um, a couple more drinks will make this time with my family a little more manageable, right? There's, there's one. Five or six more drinks, right? There's a message, right? Truly. Um, you know, these don't come as a roar. <laughs> they come as a whisper. Um, but make no mistake, they are, they are bent on your destruction. So there he is, the enemy, the devil, this defeated but angry foe. There's the portrait according to 1 Peter. All right, spent a little extra time there, but I wanted to kind of get inside of what this actually looks like in our lives and our culture today. Um, sorry, just before I go on, I, I remember Pastor Adrian DeVizier from Sri Lanka, I remember asking this question, why don't we see more spiritual warfare in the West? You know, like we hear these stories of exorcisms and healings, and we don't see it as much here, and why is that? And he said, well, let me tell you what's going on in the West. The family unit is completely eroding. Okay? People are utterly distracted with materialism and entertainment. Uh, loneliness is on the rise. Um, Anxiety is on the rise. Depression is on the rise. Conflict's on the rise. He's like, I, I'd say he's doing pretty well in the West. Right? I mean, Satan's alive and well in the West. Looks different, but it's, he's powerful and active. And yet he's defeated. So let's talk about how then do we resist him. Okay? This isn't a seminar on that, this is looking just simply at Peter. So let me just give you a couple thoughts from, from Peter's own words. Uh, first, the important thing, look at verse 9. Here's the call. Resist him. He's powerful, he's frightening, but he's defeated, so resist him. And the assumption throughout the New Testament is believers can resist him. We have the spiritual resources we need to do this. James says it this way, resist the devil and he will flee from you right? You're not left defenseless. You have what you need in Christ to do this. So that's the first thing. You can resist him. How? Three strategies that Peter gives us here. Look at verse 8. First strategy, be alert and of sober mind, okay? Third time in this letter, Peter has said that. Be alert and sober. Stay awake. 
Don't get distracted. Don't get drunk with all that the world has to offer you. Don't fall asleep. Be awake and be sober. Kaiser Soze famously put it, right? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist, right? As believers, we need to be convinced that he does exist, and we need to stay awake and alert. And specific, what I'm suggesting today is we need to stay awake and alert to those false messages, the disinformation that is planted into our minds that comes not from the Word of God, but comes from a different source. Uh, I love, there's some parents who I enjoy, and they'll watch shows with their kids, but they will regularly, at the end of a show, say, okay, kids, so what was the message under that? What was the message? What would you hear? And oftentimes, the message is like, follow your heart or something like that, you know, or a commercial, right? Okay, kids, great, let's get the car. <laughs> but what's the message? What was, what was being sold to you there? What's the message? And this is how we need to be. We need to be awake and alert to the messages that are coming at us, okay? Is this message consistent with the Word of God, or is this a lie of the enemy? Because messages are coming at us all day long. And if we're not awake and alert to them, chances are we're buying into them, right? If you don't know what the messages are, <laughs> chances are you're living out the messages, and so this is kind of a good defense. I was, I was a defender in, in high school. I was a defender in soccer. And, and we need to be aware of, of these messages that are coming at us. We need to stay awake and alert to them. We need to see them for what they are so that when we see them, we can say, nope, lie, 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 lie. This is the truth, okay? That's a renewing of our minds daily, right? Awake, alert. Second strategy um, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Well, faith will take, come back to that for the third one. And here's the phrase, end of verse 9. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Here's the second strategy. Being aware of our common struggle in this together. Peter is saying, remember, you're not alone in this, first century readers, right? Believers all around the world are going through the same things that you're going through. And for, for them, they were going through persecution. I mean, they were getting hit hard. The message, I think, that, that Satan was giving to them was Jesus isn't worth it. That was the lie. Jesus, this is, Jesus isn't worth this. This is crazy. This is so painful. We've lost our jobs. Some of them may be losing their homes. Or we've lost friendships. This isn't worth it. That's the lie. And Peter says, no, remember, believers all around the world are going through this. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, right? Hey, guys, this isn't unique. This isn't special. To you. Believers are, are all around the world are facing this. And, and I thought about that, and I thought that's so helpful because what Satan, I think, wants to do, Satan wants to isolate us. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to take someone and pull them away from the flock. He wants to isolate us. And that's when he does his, his work. When he can separate us and then just put those messages in in isolation to us, that's when he does his deepest, darkest work. And so I think that's one of the things as church leaders we've been concerned about. Like as COVID kind of, you know, we're coming out of this and we still see a group of people who have chosen not to come back to church, not for health reasons, just because they have gotten out of the, you know, the habit. And I want to say, gosh, I've never seen that go well for people, 
right? We need to be together in whatever forms. We need to stay together, part of the flock, because when we're isolated, that's when we tend to buy into these messages. And I was thinking this week, temptation itself, like when you're in a season of temptation, that experience can be very isolating. Um, when, you're, when you're really struggling with something that's kind of dark, you can kind of feel really alone in it. And you can almost think no one else is going through this, right? No one else is thinking these thoughts. Like as parents um, who just struggle to like their kids. <laughs> I just don't like my kids right now. Well, that, that's a dark thought. I'm not going to share that thought with anybody, <laughs> right? And no parent ever, anywhere has ever had that thought before, <laughs> right? But it, it can be isolating. Like I, I feel like a failure. I just feel like I'm never enough. I don't know if it, I look around. No one else looks like they're feeling that, Right? That's a very isolating thought. And what Peter is wanting to do is unisolate us here. Remind us, guys, you're in this together. This is, we have a common enemy, and he hits us in common ways. And um, it doesn't solve the problem, but it makes it a little less challenging, knowing that, hey, this is par for the course. This is what we all have to struggle with. It becomes a little less overwhelming when you know you're not alone in it. So be alert. Remember, you're not alone in this. And then thirdly, and this is where I'll land the plane this morning, look at verse 9 again. Resist him, and here it is, standing firm in the faith. This is how you resist Satan. You stand firm. Or look at verse 12, okay? Second sentence there. I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Here it is. Stand firm fast in it. So stand firm, stand fast. I would say the most consistent metaphor for resisting Satan in the New Testament is this metaphor, stand firm, stand fast. Let me show it to you in Ephesians 6. This is kind of the classic passage on spiritual warfare. Look at all the stand language here. Put on the full armor of, armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth. Get the idea? Right? So the idea is there's some opposing force. There's some big wind blowing at us. And we're called to stand fast, to stand firm, to hold our ground. And my, my sense of, of what this is is, is this. Guys, Jesus has already won the victory, right? The victory has already been accomplished. Christmas time, he enters into enemy territory. I already mentioned this. And he takes back ground. He achieves the victory. He's taken the hill already. You now stand on that hill. You actually don't need to advance any more than he has. You need to stand your ground, stand firm in the victory that Jesus has already achieved. That's the idea. So again, verse 9, what are we standing firm in? Stand firm in the faith. Well, what's the faith? <laughs> That's the, the message that we've received. That's the good news that we believe in. That's the gospel. Verse 12, stand fast in the grace. All that God has done for you in Christ, all that he has poured out on you, you just stand fast in that, right? So let me just remind you of the victory. Here's the victory that Christ has achieved. You are the chosen of God, the elect. We've talked about that word. Um, you have been forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, forgiven of all your sins, past, present, future, right? 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been adopted into God's family. You are sons and daughters of the king, which means that the eternal God loves you. It also means he really likes you. He enjoys you. He wants to be with you because you're his kids, and he's a perfect father, unlike this imperfect father, okay? And it also means since you're his kids, that means you get the inheritance, right? He's never going to die, but he's going to give it to you when you die. And the inheritance is eternal life, which is this epic future that goes on forever, where you rule and reign with Jesus and enjoy the body of believers and just this epic existence, okay? That's your future. In the meantime, God is working in everything in your life. He's at work in it all, intending your good in it. He will never leave you or forsake you, right? He is present. His Holy Spirit is active and available to you at every moment of your life. This is the victory that Jesus has achieved. So, Peter says, stand fast in that. Stand firm in the faith. Amen. What is the armor of God that you put on every day? It's just the gospel as far as I can tell, right? What are you putting? You're putting on truth. You're putting on righteousness. You're putting on salvation. You're putting on peace. You're putting on the word of God. You're putting on the gospel, (laughs) You're standing fast in what Jesus has already accomplished. And you're praying all the time. Stay close to him. Pray, pray, pray. This is how we resist the devil. The way I'd say it is a good defense is a really good offense, right? We need to have an offense. Now we stand fast in all the good that we have in Jesus Christ. To use the marriage analogy, I love this. How do you stand fast in a marriage? How do you stand fast in your marriage? Well, if someone came to me and asked me that, I, I would not say to them, well, try really hard not to think about all the other people you'd rather be with than your spouse, <laughs> right? That wouldn't be the advice. Try hard not to think about the good things you had when you were single and the freedom you had back then. I wouldn't say that, right? I'd say, no, how do you stand fast in your marriage? Date your spouse. <laughs> Pursue your spouse. Do the things you love together, right? Pour out your hearts to one another regularly. Spend quality time together. Pursue one another, right? Because um, it's really hard to have an affair when you really enjoy your marriage, turns out. It can still happen, but it's really hard. And I think that's what we want as, as believers. This is how we resist the devil. This is a great strategy. How do you stand fast against your enemy? You go hard after God every single day. You make that relationship central primary. You open his word regularly, right? And you think about what are the promises that I'm being told here? What's the good news that I'm experiencing here? What's, what am I learning about God and his love for me? And you think about eternal life. You think about your inheritance regularly, what, what that will be like. You renew your mind in that every day. You're praying all the time so that your heart and mind are con- increasingly convinced God is good. He loves me. He's with me. He's going he's gonna to protect me. He's going he's gonna to fulfill his plans for me. So that when Satan's lies come to you, you can kind of say, I'm sorry, those just don't do it for me as much as they used to, right? They're just not as believable anymore in light of what I experience in Christ. Let me leave you with um, this great quote from George Mueller. I just started, um, someone else is reading this and she reminded me of this, uh, his biography. It's awesome. But I love this quote. I want, I want to leave you with this quote as we continue in the Christmas season as maybe a way that you can move forward in the coming weeks 
to um, just go after all the goodness of who God is for us. Love this quote. This guy's awesome, by the way. Um, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord, right? That's the primary thing I need to do is, is find my contentment in God. The first thing to be concerned about was not actually how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but first, how my inner man may be nourished in the Lord. So what would it look like for you in, in these coming two weeks to ask yourself, how can I find my soul happy? You know, that word, he means that word, I think, a little deeper than the word happy we use today, but nourished in the Lord. And that doesn't, isn't to say there's, there isn't a lot of challenges in the next couple of weeks and pain and right, triggered memories. But I want to stand fast in the goodness of God. That is how I resist the devil and his schemes. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. And I pray specifically into those places where there is disinformation in their hearts and minds, where Satan has whispered false messages that are not from you. And some of those, for, for, for all of us, we have some of those that we've carried around for years. And they're not easy <laughs> to change in our minds. So I pray for your spirit. I pray for the sword of the spirit to enter our hearts and minds that your truth and your gospel would invade those places and bring healing and bring correction, bring uh, transformation, bring wholeness, truth, holiness, Help us to stand fast in you. And I pray even this week that you would just prompt us. Your spirit would just prompt us towards these little moments of, of prayer to you. Uh, little moments of gratitude where we remember all the good that we have in our lives. Moments where we just, just take a moment and get into your word and, and just soak in a couple verses. Ways that we stand fast in your grace and in your goodness. Um, that we might simply... Hold our ground as your sons and daughters and the authority that you've given us, Lord. So move in us this week, and even as we pray now, as we, as we sing now, may this be a time where we, our hearts are happy in you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.